Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You have your Bibles with you, I hope. If you'll open them to Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read two pre-verses and then we'll get right to the study as we look at these last few verses as Paul winds up perhaps the greatest chapter that was ever written in the entire world forever and ever and ever. Got it? I'll be reading from the NIV and from the ESV, primarily from the ESV, but you'll notice a little bit of difference if you're looking at a different translation. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 8, 28, for we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And then to our main passage, and this is a long passage, so let me go through it with you piece by piece. What then shall we say to these things? What things? Those that we just read and others. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not long ago, my wife found a little video clip that was probably a minute, a minute and a half, two minutes, right? It's a real short thing and asked me to watch it with her. And I will admit to you, it was one of the most astounding things I've ever seen in my entire life. And I hope you saw it. It was was a video of a concert or orchestra all across the stage. There in front of it was the conductor. And during that process, they stopped. A man walked onto the stage, just dressed in plain clothing, and began to organize and direct the audience. There must have been 10,000 people. There's an astounding. Now, I know they had to pre-plan this. They had to have done that, but it almost seemed like it was spontaneous. And he started over here, and they began to sing. They weren't singing words. They were just using their voices. And then he moved here, and then here, and then here. And soon, they were all singing, and they were then began to sing 
in harmony with one another, and he began to gather them, and you could just feel the energy in the room. He gathered them, and it got louder and louder and louder and louder until they came to an apex. If you can imagine 10,000 voices all singing at the same time, and when they came to that peak, the hair on my arms literally stood up. I could not speak because I was choked up, and I had tears in my eyes. It was unbelievably fantastic. When we come to this last part of Paul's letter to the Romans, it's one of those peak situations in scripture. It's almost as if we have stepped onto Mount Everest through the Bible. I personally believe it is the high point of Romans chapter eight. I personally believe it is the apex of the entire New Testament, I honestly believe it is the Mount Everest scripturally of everything that's written in your Bible and mine. There is so much here. I need just about two hours, so please be patient. <laughs> if you're here today, and for some reason, you've begun to doubt your personal salvation, sin has racked your bones, and you just wonder if God still really loves you. If you're wondering if God's going to secure you and keep you and get you all the way to heaven, perhaps if you've drifted away from church, you knew you needed to be in church, but you just haven't been here or someone's church. If you happen to wonder every now and then, Lord, is all of this really, really true? If you know you're saved, but somehow you just need reassurance, then these words that the Apostle Paul has written for you and me are for you today. What he's really saying is this. We can rest in the assurance that salvation is eternally secure in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the summation of all that he says. Now, I've divided this section into three separate areas. It doesn't need to be divided. Perhaps it shouldn't be divided, but I've given Roman numeral one, two, and three so that you could follow my thinking and so that I could keep my thinking on course. Paul opens this up with seven rhetorical questions. Now, I have to talk to the Sunday school class all the time to explain to them what rhetorical means. That means don't answer. What he's saying to us is, I'm going to ask a question, and then I'm going to answer that question before you get a chance to open your mouth. That's what he's saying. And there are seven of these. One's broad, one very broad statement, and then there are six more specific statements that follow each one of those. The first question is found in Romans 8.31, and this is the question. And notice how, how broad it is. What then shall we say in response to these things? That's why I read those two, those two previous verses. What then shall we say to these things? J.B. Phillips translates it like this, and I like that. He said, the, in the face of all of this, what's there left to say? When we think about, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we think about, and we know that in all things God works together for the good of them that love him, and so on and so forth. What's there left to say? I mean, that's just about the whole deal, isn't it? That there is no condemnation, and God loves us from here to the end. 
Now, if we believe that, and if we know there's not much left to say, then what does that leave us at this point? This is the first point that I have. Our salvation is certain and secure. Your salvation is certain and secure because the Father defends us. Now, what we're seeing here is God's courtroom in glory. That's what he's opening up for us. So if, you, if, you, it's just, if in your minds you could translate yourself and think, we are now in heaven, God has opened his courtroom, and we are going to walk into that. So we ask the question, what then can we say to all of that? Number one, the Father defends us personally. Now notice what he says in question number two. If God is for us, who can be against us? We need to know that God is not our enemy. He's not in opposition to us. He's not pushing us down. God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? I heard the other day, I read the other day, someone who said, God plus one is a majority. And I thought, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard in my entire life. That is just plain stupidity. If God plus, do you think God needs one to be in the majority? I I don't think so. God is God and he is the majority hands down. And so that's what the apostle Paul is saying to us. God defends us personally. How? Because he's on our side. Question number three, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, God said, I want to give you my very best. What is my very best? My only begotten son. Now, there are many sons and daughters of God. They're all, we are all by adoption, but there's only one only begotten son. And so when God looked down and said to himself, I suppose, how can I give all of you my very best? I'll give you my only begotten son. And if that's true, if God has given us his very best, then how will he not give us all of those things less than his best to see us through? If God is for us, who can be against us? So God defends us in court personally. He also in, defends us in his court publicly. Notice the fourth question. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Now you're standing in God's courtroom and God asks the question, who then is going to bring any, bring any charge against those whom God has already chosen? And then he answers, it's God who justifies. In other words, it's God who acquits. It's God who says this person is not guilty. It's God who says there is no sin here. It's God who pronounces freedom. Question number five, who is to condemn? Now, I want you to know there's no double jeopardy in heaven. Aren't you glad? There's no double jeopardy. He says to us, who is, who is to condemn? And then note what he says. He talks about Jesus. He says, there is no double jeopardy in heaven because it was Christ who was punished. What? He died for us. My sin, your sin is fully paid for. When I studied this, it, it just, it, it just kind of grabbed my heart thinking, Roy, it's not that God looks away from your sin. It's not that he pretends like you and I didn't sin. It is that all of my sin was punished. My sin was punished. Who, who was it punished upon? Jesus. And that's what he's saying here. Christ, it's Christ who died. Octavius Winslow said this, and this is so important, quote, 
Who delivered, delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas, but money. Not Pilate, for fear. Not the Jews, for envy. But the Father, for love. Who delivered Jesus, his only begotten son? Who delivered to us the best that he had? My only begotten son, the father says, I give him to you and I punish him for you. So he punished Jesus for my sin and yours. And then he proved that the punishment was complete because he raised then Christ, his son from the dead. He positioned Jesus in that right place. He's at the right hand of the father. Watch, where's Jesus today? He's at the right hand of the Father, King of kings, Lord of lords, exalted above all else, exalted above everything that there could be. He's positioned for us in heaven. What's he doing there? What's he doing in heaven? You and I are sitting here wondering what we're going to get pancakes. I'm wondering if I can eat between services. I don't know whether I can do that or not. Come up in the second sentence. I have a hand. Anyway. What are we doing? We're doing this. What's Jesus doing this very moment? Praying for us. He is interceding for us this very moment. If you're like me, when you flip on your television and watch it for five minutes, there's at least nine commercials for attorneys, one after another, after another, after another, after another. Hire me because I am a strong arm. That wasn't rhetorical. Everybody's an attorney, but I'm different because not only am I an attorney, I am also a medical doctor. Hire me because I am the law tigers. I didn't know that tigers need representation, but if they do, we've got an attorney for them. What's going on in heaven? We walk into God's courtroom in heaven. Whose courtroom is it? It's the Lord's. Who's the judge? God's the judge. Who's the defense attorney? God is the defense attorney. Who's sitting with the family? God is sitting with the family. It's God's final. It's God's kingdom. It's God's place. It is God's courtroom. J.B. Phillips paraphrased it again like this. Who would dare accuse us whom God has chosen? God himself has declared us free from sin. Who is in position to condemn only Christ Jesus is in that position, and he died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. The Father is not in opposition to us. If he can be for us, who can be against us? Second point I've pulled out of this is this. Our salvation is certain and secure because the Father defends us, but also because Jesus died for us. Question number six, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is a very, very curious section of scripture. And I wrestled with this over and over and over and turned it around and thought, yes, no, yes, no. And I'll show you why. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Here's the answer. Now, what does he ask? Who, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists seven things of what's. There's not a who in the bunch. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Question number seven, or, or answer number seven, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Do you see a who in there any place? They're all what's, aren't they? Who shall separate us from the love of God, the love of Christ, 
Tribulation, that's not a who, that's a what. Distress, that's a what. Persecution is a what. And I wrestle with that, and I looked at different translations. What in the world is going on here? And it finally dawned on me, I think this is right. If you think it's wrong, I don't care. <laughs> Behind every tribulation is a who. Behind every distress is a who. Behind every persecution is a who. And right down the line. And I looked at that and I thought, think of the people, think of the Christians today living in Afghanistan. Do you think they look at tribulation and don't know the who that's pouring all of that on them? Certainly they think of the Ukraine. Do you think in their famine, they don't think there is an individual who has brought this famine upon me? Certainly it is. And, and God is saying to us, I want you to know that these things, these seven things are not a rarity for the Christian life. They're commonplace in the Christian life. And even though you and I don't, we don't have all of that, that some Christians in Russia and China and Afghanistan and Ukraine and all around are not facing today. Certainly we face some of those things. We do. I know you do. I know you do. They're not a rarity. They should be commonplace in our life. He quotes this from Psalm 44 when he says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep for the slaughter. If you stand up, if we stand up for Christ in this society today with a morality as loose as it is today, I promise you, there will be tribulation. There will be. It's Paul's resume. I'm certainly thinking that's the Roman Christian's resume that Paul wrote to. And it's many of your resumes too, isn't it? I know it is. Now the danger here is that when these things happen, we take it within ourselves thinking God has deserted me. I didn't believe enough. I don't know whether I'm secure or not. I just don't know. There's a place in the Dallas airport, uh, Dallas Love Field, that I fly in and out of when I'm going to Texas to fish. Not nearly often enough. It's called Dunkin' Donuts, and you've seen those. And within there, they have this little Dunkin' Donuts uh, kiosk kind of thing, and they sell good coffee and treats and that kind of stuff. And there's always a long line there. As soon as I get through security, it's my first stop because I'm always early. As my wife can testify, I'm always early. And I get there because that's the only place that's open that early in the morning. And you have to stand in line. It's a long, long line. And when you finally get up there, you say, I want this and I want that. And, and they get to take your money and take your money, take your money and take your money. And, but they don't take your name. They don't give you a number. They give you nothing. We just got your money. And you just stand over that group. Over there's a, here's a line and there's a herd. So you go from the line to the herd and you're over there in the corner and you're just standing in like this with everybody else with their luggage and, and, and they're hollering out, small coffee with cream, tall, tall coffee with applesauce, whatever they put in that stuff. And they're just hollering one after another after another and everybody stands there and you don't watch. I mean, who cares? Who cares if you've got a small or tall coffee or what? 
whatever. But the other morning I was standing there, probably 15 of us waiting to get our order, to receive our order. And the woman walked out and set a coffee down and cried. Of course, they yelled because there's so much noise in there. And she yelled out, small coffee, six sugars. And I want to tell you something, everybody in the group stopped their talking and wanted to, they wanted, I wanted to know, I like a little sugar in my coffee, but I've never taken six before. I want to know who, who the nut was that ordered that. I mean, as long as it's, as long as it's black coffee, white coffee, this kind of coffee, I mean, nobody paid any attention, but when they said small black coffee with six sugars, I mean, everybody stopped. Woo. How exciting is this? That's what Paul is talking about here, that when a Christian has tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, we back up and look at it like this is the most rare thing that could have ever happened to anyone. And it's not, he says. It's not. It's common to those of us who love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice how he responds to that. This is in verse 37. No, in all these things, what? In in all of those that he just listed, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are super conquerors. That's the word that's used there. We are super conquerors. We just don't get by. We are super conquerors in Christ. Do you remember some of you will, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's old bunch of old folks. That's what the Lord's saying to us. We are more than super conquerors. Through him who loved us. Final number three. We are certain of our salvation and secure because Jesus died for us. And number three, because the Holy Spirit defends us against all opposition. Paul continues. For I am convinced. He didn't say I'm just really hoping for the best here. He didn't say I'm pretty sure this is all going to work out. He didn't say... I'm somewhat positive about all of this, but he said, I am convinced. Say it with me. I am convinced. What? I am convinced. Of what? And there are six things listed, and I'll go quickly. I'm convinced that the extremes of all of our existence, that is neither life nor death, I'm convinced that the spiritual forces in the unseen world, angels, nor rulers. Someone said angels won't and demons can't. I'm convinced that anything, nothing that occurs in time, present or things to come, I'm convinced that no governmental system, no governmental institution, nor powers, I'm convinced that nothing overhead or underneath that is height or depth, I'm convinced that nothing in the entire creation Anything else in all creation shall what? I am convinced that we are able to separate us, that any of that is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am convinced that nothing will separate us from Jesus Christ the Lord. Now notice, we're not kept because of our love for him. 
Human love ebbs and flows. It's hot, it's cold, it's up, it's down, it's near, it's far. That's human love. And, and we love deeply Christ at times. And sometimes he's one place and we feel like we're someplace else. It's not our love for God that keeps us. It's God's love for us that keeps us. He shows us that we see this in Christ's love. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? We see this in the Holy Spirit's love. We are more, we are super conquerors through him who loved us. We see this in the Father's love because who will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Now, this whole thing is called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And that simply means that once we place our faith in Christ, he saves us, we're saved forever. And we cannot disrupt that. We cannot lose that. It is forever. John Stott, one of my favorite authors, said this, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints needs to be renamed. What does it need to be? It is the doctrine of the perseverance of God with the saints. In other words, he keeps us. We do not keep ourselves. Now, I said there were seven rhetorical questions. I'm going to add one more, and this is from me. Not the most important, but important. You need to write this down because you'll want to share this with your great-grandchildren. Are you ready? I'm, I'm going to be serious now. How much liquid is actually contained in one average coffee cup? Now you think about this. You seniors got writing this down. How much liquid is actually contained in a normal size? Now, I'm not talking about these coffee cups that some of our staff drink. They're about this high, and they're filled with liquid mud. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a normal human being in a normal coffee cup. Now, I know, and I'll share with you in just a minute. About 10 days ago, we ordered and had installed some wall-to-wall carpet over our hard, hardwood floors in a portion of our house. It's actually two rooms that are combined, so it's about 15 feet, 6 inches by about 25 feet. So it's a large room. And we had this pale blue carpet with kind of a silver sheen installed there. It's beautiful, beautiful carpet. My wife did just a wonderful, wonderful job. The other morning, I was studying early. I went into the kitchen, and I perked a pot of coffee, got me a cup, my normal cup, had a handful of notes that I'd been studying with, getting ready for today, walked around and sat in my chair, or to sit in my chair, and as I got there, my chair is here, and right here, there's a table, and I walked around in front of that table, holding my notes, and as I, I walked up there, I took that cup of coffee, and I put it up there on the edge. And when I did, about one-third of the cup got on the edge, and the two-thirds of the cup suddenly time stood still. And I stood there, brand-new carpet, less than a week old. I stood there. When I put that up there, it was in slow motion. The coffee cup came over this way, <laughs> turned upside down, slowly descended to the floor, when it hit, there's a sofa over here about eight feet. It got coffee on that sofa. <laughs> now then, how much 
coffee is contained in a normal size? I'm going to give you the answer. Seven and one half gallons. <laughs> For the next 45 minutes, I'm on my knees, blotting, looking, blotting, looking, praying that Barbara doesn't come in, plotting, looking, <laughs> weeping, using my underwear, everything to get this stuff out of that carpet. I got it all out, dried it, patted it, used it. It came back. I did it again. I sprayed it. I got it all done. If you were in walk in to walk into our house today, I will guarantee you in this lifetime, you can't find a stain. There's no stain there. I promise you, it is gone. There is no stain, Barbara, on the carpet. There's no stain on the carpet, but something was left. What was left was my personal shame. No stain. The residual was shame. What happens to us when we live our Christian life is we look at our sin and there is no stain. If you tell me I have sinned and there's stain in my life, I'm going to tell you that you just called Jesus a liar because he gave himself for all your stain and my stain and your stain and everyone's stain. There is no stain. But what gets us is the knowledge, the wisdom, anti-wisdom of the shame that remains. And so we look at our shame and we say, God, I can't be saved. Look at my shame. Look at my shame. And God says to you and me, there is no stain, only shame. Aren't we glad for God's shame? I mean, if it wasn't for the shame, I'd be spilling coffee all over everything all the time. But there's coming a day when he even deals with that. Isaiah, speaking God's word in Isaiah 65, wrote this, For behold, I create heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or even come to mind. So we live today with no stain, but a lot of shame. But when walked into heaven, there'll be no stain and there'll be no shame. Aren't you glad that we are saved and safe in the arms of Jesus? Father, God, bless us, work through us, use us, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com. 